So Revelation chapter number 11, and if you would stand, uh, if you get that in your Bible, and while you are standing, I want to read Revelation 1 and verse number 3. It said, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. So Jesus Christ himself says that you're blessed here today just because we are reading the words of the prophecy of this book. We are in verse number 15 this morning. I'm excited about the last five verses of this chapter. In fact, uh, so excited that uh, this will be a two-part message out of verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So let's read, starting in verse number 15. It says, And the seventh angel sounded... And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven... And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. These are the results of this seventh trumpet judgment. We'll be focusing this morning's message on verse 15 through verse number 17, a little bit of verse number 18, but primarily the first part of the text that we just read. Father, bless us today as you have said in your word that you would. Thank you for the prophecies that we just read. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecy that Jesus Christ will one day rule and reign over this entire earth. And Lord, we are looking forward with joy and anticipation, God, of that day that will come. Lord, everything around us is just discouraging and despairing and uh, Lord, we, we are fearful of tomorrow and uh, the economy and the morality and our young people and so many things that cause us concern. But Lord, we have a blessed hope that you're going to come back one day. And Lord, we see in the Word of God that it could be today. And Lord, we forget that. And Lord, the devil's got us so distracted by the things of this world and this life. And I pray, God, that something would be said here today that would be used of the Holy Spirit to wake us up to the soberness and reality that this day is upon us. And I pray, God, that our hearts would get right with you. And I pray, Father, as Brother Randy testified earlier here this morning, that if anyone is here today without Jesus Christ, that they would recognize this could be the very last opportunity that they have to receive you in their heart and in reality. And God, I pray that you would please work through this service. Bless all that are tuning in through live stream, Lord. We know not uh, who they are, and Lord, uh, whoever you lead toward hearing this message, we pray that this message 
would be effective. And Lord, just sow the, uh, water the seeds that have been sown and bring forth fruit for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. So this is the last trumpet judgment. The last trumpet, if you will. And keep in mind that the term last is relative to the series of trumpets it is in context with. The reason I say that because we read in 1 Corinthians 15.52 that Paul refers to the last trump. And that's not the same trumpet as the last trumpet of these seven. You're talking about different series of trumpets. It's two totally separate things. Now, I'm looking forward to hearing the last trump of this church age, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. When that trumpet sounds, the Bible says that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm looking forward to that last trump, but keep in mind that that is the last trump in connection to the context of a series of trumpets that have previously blown. This is the last of these seven, but it's something that's totally different than the trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15.52. To make a connection between those two, I'm all for cross-referencing, by the way, We saw last week that we're supposed to cross-reference and compare Scripture with Scripture, and that's how we build the truths of doctrine. Uh, There's a lot of truths that God wants us to know, but He just doesn't come right out and tell us we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We need to let the Word of God interpret itself, but you got to be careful if you take something out of its immediate context and make a connection with something else, then... Uh, you're not rightly dividing the word of truth. There are words in the Bible that mean something different each time that they appear. The term kingdom, the term gospel, the term baptism. All of those you cannot assume that every time you see that word that it is referring to the very same thing. To do so would cause great confusion and doctrinal error. Now look at verse number 15, when this seventh angel sounds this trumpet, it says that there's going to be some great voices in heaven. Now these great voices in heaven are such a stark contrast with Revelation 8.1 where John says that there was silence in heaven. What a difference between silence in heaven and these voices, great voices in heaven. I mean, it's, it's kind of what, what we need to realize is that when this seventh trumpet sounds, then Christ's day, the day of Christ, it has come. And when Jesus shows up as king, silence is impossible. In Luke 19, verse number 40, now this was a precursor to the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19:11 when he comes in on a white horse flying down from heaven but this was a picture or a symbol when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and they took palm leaves and they they strewed them in front this was a sign of royalty that Jesus the Messiah was indeed their king it was a picture 
And as the disciples began to rebuke those that were crying out, Jesus said in Luke 19 and verse number 40, he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. You know, when Jesus shows up in his glory as King of kings and Lord of lords, listen, if we as his people don't cry out in praise and worship of him, then the stones will start shouting. I don't want a substitute, do you? I don't want God have to get a stone to cry out adoration and praise to Jesus Christ. I want to have that privilege, and so should you. And so in verse 15, these great voices, what are they saying? They're saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. And so the first thing I want to talk about this morning is the kingdoms of this world. Do you know that God gives power, His power and authority to whomever He wants to? There is no power or authority on this earth that didn't ultimately come from God. Do you remember when Jesus stood before uh, Pilate and Pilate said, don't, you know, you're not going to answer me. Don't you realize I've got power to crucify you? And Jesus so rightly said, he said, you wouldn't have any power at all if it didn't come from my heavenly father. So often we get so full of ourselves, and we think that we're self-sufficient. We think that we can take care of, I can take care of that. I got this when we're just foolish and we don't realize that everything that we have, everything that we are, and everything that we do ultimately came from God. God takes his power and authority and he gives it to whomever he wants to. Jeremiah 27 verse number 5, God says, I have made the earth the man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. We read that God gave dominion of the earth to Adam and his descendants. Yes, that is right. We have dominion over this earth. We are not intruders. I know that the environmentalists, they want to get rid of everyone except for them. And that's really what they're saying. They, they want you to drive an electric car while they fly a private jet. And that's just one sample of many. You know, they don't, they don't want, they don't see themselves as intruders. They see themselves as the guardians and everybody else as an intruder. Listen, God gave dominion over this earth. This earth was made for man. Man wasn't made for this earth. God's more interested in the salvation of souls than he is the salvation of this planet. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be stewards of anything and everything that God has created. We should be good stewards. But at the same token, we are not intruders. We are supposed to tend. I I was uh, in a public restroom I forget where it was here several weeks ago, and uh, I, I got done washing my hands, and I got ready to get the paper towels out, and somebody had put a sticker on the paper towel dispenser, and it said, please be mindful that this came from trees. 
And I know what the sticker's purpose was. They're trying to make me feel guilty for drying my hands. And that's really what it was all about. And I thought about that and I thought, you know what? That is so foolish. You know what they're trying? Let's everybody feel guilty over using a tree. And that way, that way, after a couple of years of not using anything that came from trees and the forests are not thinned out, then lightning can strike and can burn a 100,000 acres instead of 17,000 acres. Because that's exactly what happens, folks. Listen, the trees. Listen, God even took care. God said to the children of Israel, when you go against a city to, to make, to, to go against it, He said, if you're going to cut down trees in order to try to get over the walls of that city and build a tower and build things, all of your war entrapments, he said, don't cut down the fruit trees. Those are for the food of man. God took some special characteristics, but he said, it's okay to cut down trees. It's okay to use the planet earth. It's okay to eat meat. Praise the Lord. Do you know that some of these vegan and vegetarian, and this is not on my notes, Lord help me. Some of these vegan and vegetarians are finding out that they were wrong all along and that meat's actually healthy. Yeah, it's okay. I think that moderation of anything, you know, you do too much of anything and there's going to be some kind of a health you know, whether it be your cholesterol or your blood pressure or obesity or whatever, there's all kinds of problems. And so God made, listen, I'm a carboholic. I love carbohydrates. And carbohydrates are not the best thing for me, even though I love them. But I found that God made carbohydrates and he made protein and he, he made fat. In fact, the the Old Testament says all of the fat is the Lord's. He likes fat. (laughs) It's all okay. Just you need to be in moderation and some common sense and so forth. Now, I need to get back to what God told me to preach here this morning. All right, so God gave dominion of the earth. That's where this came from. God gave dominion of the earth to Adam, but... The kingdoms of the earth he gave to Satan. You say, wait a minute, isn't God over everything? Well, yes, he is ultimately, but he does give power and authority to whomsoever he wills. And he happened to give the kingdoms of this world to Satan. How do we know that? Well, Luke chapter 4 And verse number 5, this is Jesus being tempted by Satan himself. It says, And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. Let me tell you something, God ultimately sets up rulers and takes down rulers, but there are some instances where God just sits back and he gives the devil some authority and some control. 
And when you take, you know, there was a time, I believe, in the United States of America where we had men in leadership, and I'm not just talking about the president, I'm talking about all throughout the leadership of this nation that there were men who were men of God. But I'm telling you what, the majority of the people in leadership of this country today, I don't believe that they were placed there by God. I believe they were placed there by he who rules the kingdoms of this world. And as we see the direction of our country and how that our nation is more and more becoming a nation that doesn't resemble following God and God we trust and the righteousness of this book, we are we have become a very wicked nation. And if I, and I know I'll, I'll, I never will, but if I had a voice that I could tell the whole nation, if people would listen to this preacher for just about 10 seconds, I would remind everyone that God said in his word that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God, because we have forgotten God. We have, we're no longer a nation that is filled. We have plenty of righteous people, but not as many as there used to be. And the powers that be are making policy and decisions that are foolish and contrary to the word of God. Where do we get, why are we having laws that are saying, let's extend the debt limit? Why don't we just live within our means? Why don't, why don't we quit sending billions of dollars to the people that hate our guts to begin with? And, you know, hey, if that can do some if that can accomplish some diplomacy and make the world a better place, then fine. If you've got it, if you've got it to spend and lay, we've, we've got this extra money here. God's blessed our nation. Let's, let's send it to these countries that maybe this could do something good. But if you don't have it, then why are you, we spending it and then just continually sacrificing our future? Why? Because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And the reason being is right here because Satan does indeed have power and authority over the kingdoms of this world. And I hate to burst your patriotic, patriotic bubble, but America is no exception. We are one of the kingdoms of this world and it is the, uh, it is the territory that God has given to Satan. Now, perhaps the greatest, as you think about this temptation of Jesus, I want to just give you a little side note, and that is this. One of the greatest elements of temptation is to offer something that they want that is also something that God wants for them, but to offer it to them in a way and in a time that dishonors God by not trusting him. You know, a lot of your sin problems and yielding to temptation is not what you did or do. It's when you do it. It's the timing. Jesus here was born to be king, and he will ultimately be king. But Satan wanted him to receive it now. And Jesus knew that, hey, I've got something I've got to do before I become king. And he needed to go to the cross before he would put on the crown. And if he would have not went to the cross, then all of the human race would be lost forever because only Jesus Christ could atone for the sins of Adam's race. That's my sins. That's your sins as an individual. 
Only the cross of Calvary can take care of those sins. And if Satan could have got Jesus to receive something that Jesus wanted, something that God wanted Jesus to have, but do it in Satan's timing instead of trusting God in his timing, then Satan would have ultimately won. Please remember, brothers and sisters, that a lot of your temptation is not necessarily the what, but it's the when. And you need to trust God and be patient. We all want gratification. We all want fulfillment. We have desires of our heart that are not always bad desires, but how we get them and how we fulfill them oftentimes becomes the make it or break it temptation in our life. In John 18 and verse number 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Notice that Jesus says, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus is getting ready to be crucified Pilate is saying, are you a king? Jesus is not denying that he's a king. He's just simply saying that right now, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then the disciples, they'd be putting on, they'd have more swords and they'd be fighting to protect their king. But Jesus said, my time's not here yet. It's going to be in the future. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Notice the phrase here in our text in Revelation eleven fifteen that the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Look at that with me once again. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus Christ the Lord? Well, yes, he is. But God the Father, God Almighty is also the Lord. And so the kingdoms belong to the Lord and of his Christ. Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the Son of God. You say this doesn't make sense. This seems to be, it seems to deny the deity of Christ, but for someone to suppose that this phrase is denying the deity of Christ, once again, that is in great doctrinal error. In Acts 2, verse number 34, it says, for David is not ascended into heaven, uh, into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. You see the terminology that the word of God, that God uses of himself? You have the Lord, all capital, that's God, sitting, that's God the Father. And then you have David saying, my Lord, that is God the Son, and God is going to put his son at his right hand until he makes all of his enemies to sit at his footstool. This is the mystery of the Godhead. And the mystery of the Godhead is something that is unique 
for this, for the ages of this world. I know the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. First John 5, 7 says these three are one. We don't worship three gods. There's only one God, but he is manifest in three different persons. And that's a mystery, folks. God himself refers to the Godhead, the Trinity, as a mystery. I want to read this to you in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want you to understand that God the Son, and as we see God as the a triune Godhead, that one of these days off into eternity, it's just going to be God. God's not going to change. He's just going to change the way that he manifests himself to us. Now, personally, I believe that it's going to be because we're going to be in a glorified body in eternity and we're going to be able to handle it. Whereas now we can't handle an understanding of an infinitely holy triune God. How do we comprehend someone who's always been and always will be? I can't. Everything in my understanding had a beginning and has an end, but not God. One of these days, one of these days, that truth won't blow our mind. I mean, the holiness of God is so amazing that Moses wanted to see the glory of God and God said, you can't, not and still live. If we saw God for who he is, it would kill us. That's how awesome and holy that he is. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 24, Paul reveals this mystery and he said, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdoms to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. This is out into the future, folks. This is after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted. Now that's not ACC being accepted. It's accept. That's the exception to this which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. When it's all said and done, folks, it's just going to be God and everything will be under his authority. Everything that he wills will have been accomplished. Everything that he revealed, I mean, all authority, death will be no more. Praise the Lord for that. The devil will be no more. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more darkness. There'll be no more night. There'll be no suffering. All of our enemies shall be put under his feet. And then the son's just going to turn everything back over to the God, the father. And it's just going to be God for all eternity. You want me to explain that to you? Too bad. I can't. I can't. No one can. But I can believe it because the word of God says it right here, crystal clear. Hebrews 2, verse number 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. 
But now we see not yet all things put under him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. This is speaking of Jesus. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. God is going to put all things under the feet of Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse number 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. You know, we're seeing a prophecy of something that our Savior desires, and it's going to be his glory someday when this trumpet sounds and all of the kingdoms become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And it breaks my heart when I think about the years of my life that Jesus was my Savior. He was my ticket out of hell, but he wasn't my king. He wasn't my Lord. And oh, how it must have broke his heart and hurt him that, hey, I just wanted, I just wanted his salvation, but I didn't really want him. And I think of those times in my life, and I think about how that so many believers around us, that they serve, they serve a Savior that they don't genuinely trust. You know, if you're going to put your entire life in his hands, You're never going to do it if you don't first trust him. And I'm telling you what, folks, he is trustworthy. He will not make a mess of your life. You will. I will. I've proven that. He won't make a mess of your life. He came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. And that brings me to the second point here this morning, and that is the worth of of worship. Look in verse 16 and 17. It says that the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. You know, the same root word of worship is the word worthy. Worship and worthy go together. Isn't that amazing? Worship and worthy. There are a lot of things that are worshipped, unfortunately, by man that aren't worthy of worship. But I'll tell you what, God and his son Jesus Christ are worthy. Even Jesus in his humanity made this clear. Luke 18, this is a perplexing, controversial passage. Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, and Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Nowhere does Jesus say here that I'm not good or that I'm not God. He's simply asking this man who is challenging him, who came up and asked him a question, and he did what so many good old boy believers do today. You know, they're not living for the Lord, but they call him the good Lord. Oh, I just, I'm just, I believe in the good Lord. Like, if I use the word good, then that gives me some points with God. God's not interested in our flattery. God's not interested in us using titles of him so that 
we're flattering him, making him feel good. God's not interested in our manipulation tactics that work on men, but they never work on him. Why callest thou me good? This, this, this challenger came to Jesus and said, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't believe that Jesus was good. He didn't believe that Jesus was God. Jesus knew that and perceived it. And he said, why are you calling me good? You don't even believe that I am who, who, who I really am. Now, modern Christianity, look at verse number 16. It says, they fell on their faces and worshiped God. I, I want to say this, and I know I've, I've taught this before, and I, sometimes people say, oh, why you keep jumping on this soapbox, preacher? Because it needs to be, it needs to be jumped on. You know, what good does it do to preach against the sins of last generation and ignore the ones of this generation? Modern Christianity has made worship all about music. Nothing could be further from the truth. I know that's controversial. I know I'm a dinosaur. I know I'm in the minority. But I'm telling you what, I don't care what the minority is. If it's backed up by this book, I'm going to stick with that truth. If I have to stick with it all by myself... What modern Christianity has turned worship into is music and a performance, and it's something that's just entirely an emotional experience where, hey, I can go to church and I can have the same emotional experience if I go to a concert. And it's not biblical. Mark this down. I'm going to tell you the truth here. Daniel chapter number 3 is the only place in the entire Bible in which you find the word worship in conjunction with music. And if you know what Daniel 3 is all about, it's not the worship of God, it's the worship of a giant golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar said, when you hear the sound of all kinds of music, then you're going you're gonna to have to worship this image or you're going to be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Do the research yourself. Now, folks, I'm not saying that music is not a valuable tool that's part of whether you want to call it worship or praise or rejoicing. Worship is a very important thing if it's done biblically. If it's the kind of music that God likes, well, I like this kind of music. This kind of music speaks to my heart. Hey, God never said, hey, what kind of music do you like? You know, in the worship of the Old Testament, there were some people that they liked a different aroma of incense better than the one that God prescribed. And they offered it to the Lord. And you know what? Fire came down and destroyed them. They thought that they could just worship God any old way that they please. It's not true worship. If we do it our way, well, I like this kind of music. Well, do you even know what kind of music that God likes? There are some principles in the Word of God that outline it. Well, this this song, this I know this song, it, it, I know it sounded like worldly music, but it just touched my heart. It spoke to me. It made me cry. 
Folks, that's, if, if that gives you an emotional experience, then more power to you, but it's not worship. Worship and music are not the same thing. Now, look at verse number 17, and you're going to see some things. This is, this is more important elements of worship. And in this modern day of praise and worship, these are the elements that are totally lost by the concert, by the performance. Look with me, verse 17, saying, we give thee thanks. Thanksgiving is one of the more important elements of worship. I didn't, I didn't come to church here today really, I, I, I got to be careful how I word this. You know what, I came here to worship, but my worship of the Lord primarily doesn't take place in this auditorium. Most of my worship takes place in my bonus room at home when I'm up there all by myself. And I'm talking to the Lord and I'm thanking him. And what I try to do, and I would recommend this because it's biblical, when you start praying and talking to God, hey, don't start out telling him what you want. Start out giving him thanks and praising him for who he is. I'm not talking about buttering him up and flattering him. I'm starting, I'm talking about saying the truth. God, you are an awesome God. God, you are a God that is holy. You are a God that never changes. You never, you cannot sin. Everything about you is perfect. You are, your intelligence and your magnificence is beyond anything that my human mind and words can give accolades to. You excel all of that, God. God, that you would look down on someone like me. And save me and care about my life. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you would even take note of me. You know what that is, folks? That's real worship. And that's the worship that's going on here of God and Jesus Christ reigning. Thanksgiving and then adoration. And then the declaration of truth. Not flattery, but just telling God and worshiping Him by declaring who he is, and that we understand that. Verse 17 is chock full of this. Why? Because he is worthy of our worship. You know what, folks? If you'd start doing this more at home, it would be a whole lot more natural here in public. You would find yourself not near as shy, not near as reserved, not near as awkward. It would be natural and you know, the, all of this praise and worship movement is just a, a counterfeit. It's just something that people have gravitated to because there's been a void of the real thing. And you know, the devil will present you something that's, yeah, it's not, the, the motives are okay, but he'll present you something that's going to send you down the wrong direction because he's aware that there's that void, and if the Spirit of God is inside of you, we all know that we need to worship. But just don't, just don't cash in your Christian life for fool's gold. When you can have, you and I can have the real thing right here. Thanksgiving, adoration, declaration of truth, and then verse number 18, I, I'm not going to comment on that, but just loyalty to Him. 
declaring that, hey, God, I'm on your side. You know, one of the best things that I ever did in my life was just before I turned 20 and I took God's side against myself. I said, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And you know what, God, if you send my worthless soul into a devil's hell, you will still be good and you will still be worthy. But I'm asking you, I'm asking you to forgive me and God did by his grace, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for that. I just had to get real with God and say, God, you're right, and I'm wrong. I'm on your side. That's what I did with my will, and that's when God, only then did God start changing my life by his grace. A man named Dimitri was a Russian pastor during the 80s and 90s. That's not very many decades ago. Not very long ago, folks. He was in prison for 17 years for not signing a document that would restrict his ministry. Consequently, he was tortured and mistreated in some very unspeakable ways. His testimony describes how that two basic disciplines kept him alive. One was that every time he could get his hands on some scrap piece of paper... He would get it back to his cell, and with a little nub of a pencil, he would write from memory as many Bible verses, Bible stories, or even Christian songs that he would had heard before or learned, and he would write them on that piece of paper. And then he would reach out as far as he could through the bars of his cell, and there was a concrete pillar that was always dripping with water, and he'd take that scrap piece of paper and he'd stick it to that wet concrete column. They would stay there until a guard or another prisoner would see it. Of course, after, you know, after multiple times, they would often be looking for it. That guard or that prisoner would grab it and take it and read it. Sometimes he'd get beaten further. Sometimes he'd get mocked and prisoners would make fun of him and take whatever he wrote and use it against him. But he would do that faithfully as often as he could. But the second discipline is that every morning at sunrise, he would face the east, raise his hands to God, and sing a song to Jesus that his father taught him to sing. He called it the heart song. And this is the chorus of that song. This is my heart song, and I will stand and sing, for I am a son of the living King. So when the fire comes, I'll be rejoicing. Yea, even when I suffer, I'll be singing. Oh, Jesus is alive. Oh, Jesus is alive. He would begin each day of suffering and torment and being depraved of the comforts of life by singing praises to Jesus. You know, Jesus himself revealed the true desire of God regarding worship. He said in John 4, verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers... That tells me that there's there's false worshipers. The true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth." If you'll recall, this was him answering the woman at the well. The woman at the well brought this question, this proposition. She said, 
our fathers said we're supposed to worship in this mountain over here, but the Jews say we're supposed to worship over here. She's making it about an event and a location. And the Lord says, that's not what God's interested in. So I want to conclude with this question, and this is a heart. This comes from my heart, and this is a very serious question. Are you a true worshiper of God? Did you worship him this morning? Maybe I should, did you worship him this week? Secondly, is your worship about him or is it about you? Thirdly, is your worship relegated only to a traditional time and place? Is your worship of God that, hey, I came to church today, I checked him off, and now I can go about my life and live the rest of this week, and I'm okay? Is that your view of worship? Number four, and this is the most important question of all that I've said here this morning, nothing's more important than this next question. Do you qualify to worship? Just like God doesn't just accept any old worship, God doesn't accept any old worshiper. We said it before, God is a holy God and we are sinful creatures. Are you worthy? Do you qualify? John 9, verse number 31, this was a man that Jesus touched who was born blind and the Pharisees are questioning him and he said something that that is, I believe, true. What he said was true. Jesus never, uh, never corrected it. He said, now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. This man had an understanding that we can't just decide when we're in a jam that we need God. We need to, to be a true worshiper We have to have our sins forgiven, and we have to have a desire to do His will. 1 Peter 3, verse number 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He, watch this, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. If you want to be a true worshiper, the only way that you can get to God is through Jesus Christ and what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He died for you, not as the example of a martyr, but he died for you as the sacrificial lamb that shed his blood to pay for our sins. Have you received it? Have you trusted him? Have you been saved? Then and only then... Do we qualify for worship? My last question, and we'll close. Will you make Jesus your Savior and King today? If he's not your Savior, will you make him your Savior today? If he's your Savior today, will you make him also your King? He's going to reign one day. All the kingdoms, everything's going to be put under his feet. The Bible tells us that Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you've not done it in your life today, why not make this the day that he becomes your Savior and your King?